You are listening to the Grace Church of Mabton podcast. This week's sermon by Pastor Adam Copenhaver covers 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11. Thanks for listening. Well, thank you to Andy for reading our text. We're back into our series in 1 Corinthians. If you remember way back before the whole Christmas season thing, we were working our way through 1 Corinthians. We took those weeks off for Christmas, for Advent, and then last week, Cole preached for us on New Year's Day, so thank you to Cole for doing that. And today, back to 1 Corinthians. So you may remember that the book of 1 Corinthians, it's in the New Testament of our Bible. This book is actually a letter. It's written by the Apostle Paul to the church, to Christians in a city called Corinth. And if you remember from what we've looked at so far, the first five chapters in this book, this church in the city of Corinth was not exactly a healthy church. It was a church full of problems. There was a lot of fighting going on. There were divisions in the church. There was sin in the church, bad theology in the church. Pretty much every bad thing that can happen in the church, more or less all those things were happening in this church in Corinth. And so in our last sermon that we preached before that Christmas season, we were in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. And if you can remember back that far, you may remember that in that chapter, chapter 5, the Apostle Paul rebukes the church in Corinth because of scandalous sin that is taking place among them that they are not addressing. It's scandalous sexual sin, incest. And so Paul, Paul is really rebuking them very strongly in chapter 5 because they have this huge, enormous, scandalous sin in their church and they're treating it like it's not really a big deal. Well, now we get to chapter 6 and Paul has another rebuke but it's kind of the opposite sort of rebuke, where Paul is now saying you have small little grievances and offenses in the church, but you're treating them like they're a huge deal, and Christians are actually going to court and suing each other over the small things. And so they've kind of got things backward in their church. The big things, they're treating like they're small things. The small things, they're treating like they're big things. And so chapter 6 today is going to be that small things treated like big things kind of rebuke. So this is one of those passages, and there will be several of these as we go through 1 Corinthians, that kind of feels like, gee, did I get up on Sunday morning and drag myself to church just to get smacked upside the head by a rebuke from the Apostle Paul and Pastor Adam? Well, that's more or less what it is. This is one of those kinds of passages. You know, the Bible is such a fascinating book, there are passages that give us great comfort in our faith, passages that, that give us comfort when we're grieving, when we're hurting. There are passages that teach us about Christ and those sorts of things. Then there are passages like this that give us that wake-up call that sometimes we need. But we're also going to see, especially as we get to the end of this passage, that this passage is filled with a good news kind of message, a message of hope, And the reason why, we'll see, the reason why Paul is so passionate about the Corinthians getting this straightened out in their church is because he wants them to realize just how extraordinary their salvation is in Christ. And he said, if you could realize that, your whole life would be changed and you would handle these things differently. And so there's good news to come in this passage about how Christ has worked in our lives. Okay, so here's our outline for today. Uh, Three points, these are in your bulletin again. If you want to take notes, follow along, that sort of thing. Also up here on the screen. 
First, resolving disputes, and we'll see, we'll look at this problem the Corinthians have where they're suing one another and why this is such a big deal. Then second, rejecting the ways of the unrighteous. So we'll look at how Paul describes the way the world lives and says, stop living like the world lives. And then third and finally, you've become saints. And here's where the real good news creeps in at the end of the passage, that you have become saints. And I was so tempted to just go straight to the last verse, but because it's such good news. But the Apostle Paul, you know, he spends 10 verses rebuking. So, okay, we better cover that. Then we'll get to the good news. So hold on. Okay, there's light at the end of the tunnel. There's something good coming at the end of the message. Okay, so first resolving disputes in the first eight verses now. What's going on in Corinth? Paul's now got this rebuke. And the gist of the problem, Paul sets forward in verse 1. Here's what he says again in verse 1. He says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Now already you can hear the frustration from Paul in this question. Does he dare, or his tone is really like, how dare you do this? What's the problem? Well, Paul says there's a grievance one Christian has against another Christian. And he doesn't say exactly what this grievance is. If, as we read through the passage, he uses a couple other words to refer to it. In verse 2, Paul will call it a trivial case. In verse 3, he'll say it's a matter pertaining to this life. In verse 7, he'll say, why not rather be defrauded? And so if you kind of put the pieces together, Paul seems to be pointing to a dispute that these two Christians are having that is a legitimate dispute. There is some kind of problem there, but it's over something that is relatively small. And so it's important for us to realize up front that this is not a criminal case that we're talking about here. There are other passages in Scripture, including passages from the Apostle Paul himself, such as Romans 13, where Paul will say as Christians, we ought to honor the government and that the judicial systems that exist within our government are used by God to bring about justice in the world, at least when they're operating properly. And so as Christians, this is not a passage that is telling us that we should not use the court system, the legal system, when there are crimes involved and when the state is interested in pursuing justice. But that's not what's going on here in 1 Corinthians 6. This is not a criminal matter. This is the kind of dispute that if you walked over to the police department and said, hey, you won't believe what this person did to me, the police would say, okay, you're going to have to go figure that out yourselves. That's not what we do here at the police department. We've got real crime to deal with, the police officer might say. So here's at least an example of what this kind of dispute could look like in today's world. And, and these are the kinds of examples that would have existed in the first century in Corinth as well. So here's kind of a modern day example. What if you as a Christian, you are renting an apartment from another Christian in the church. And when you moved out, you did your best to clean it up. And you kind of feel like, I left it in pretty good condition. I should get my deposit back. But your landlord, who's a Christian in the church, walks through the apartment and sees some of the damages and some repairs and some cleaning that needs done. And he says, no, I don't think you should get your deposit 
back. Now you have a legitimate dispute, a grievance, where one Christian feels wronged by another Christian, and maybe both ways, but not exactly a crime. So there's, there's money involved, though it is something. And if you had a situation like this in the ancient world of Corinth at that time, what you could do is you could take your case to a civil court, like a public court, and the, a judge would set up shop literally in like a marketplace, and you would bring your case against this other person. And you would do your best to explain why you think you're right and ask the judge to side with you and make them give you your deposit back. But there's a lot of historical evidence that these kinds of courts were really not very fair. If you were rich and powerful, you had a huge advantage in these courts. You could afford a lawyer to make a persuasive speech for you. Oftentimes, you could just flat out bribe the judge and pay the judge to rule in your favor. So it wasn't a fair court system. People seem to have used it largely, not so much for the ruling the judge would give, but as a way to humiliate their opponents. It's all public. I'll drag you out here and I'll smear your character in front of everyone. And so it's, it's, I was trying to think of what's a modern day example of something like that. And I was thinking, what, what, if, what if maybe two Christians have this dispute, something like, do we get your deposit back or not? And you decide the only way to resolve this dispute is to go on Judge Judy. Okay, does anybody watch Judge Judy? And you're like, no, we would never watch that, Pastor. None of us here. Mm-mm. Yeah, me neither. I've never watched Judge Judy. Okay, Martha, you're going to admit it. Thank you. Thank you. Or People's Court back in the day or something like that. Okay, so this is what these Christians are doing. They're saying, we've got this dispute. We're going to go public with it, smear one another, and ask Judge Judy to make a ruling for us on this, on this point. And Paul, you can almost imagine, like he just wants to tear his hair out. How can, you, how can this be your way of resolving these kinds of grievances? And so he, in these verses, these first eight, nine verses, he has a whole bunch of rapid fire questions for them. Just zinger after zinger after zinger. How can you, how can you go down this path? And he starts in verse 2 by pointing to our future as Christians. He says, this is verse 2, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? This is one of those passages where the Bible kind of hints at, but doesn't really say clearly in some ways, what it is that we'll be doing in heaven for all eternity. You know, not necessarily just playing harps and floating on the clouds, but here's passages like this that hint toward, point toward, how we will in some way reign with Christ for all eternity, sit on thrones with Christ in his kingdom. And as part of our reigning with Christ, apparently some kind of judging is taking place here. Even, Paul says, judging angels. Now, I would love to explain to you what that means, but this is one of or maybe the only passage where we get a statement like this, and there's no explanation there. So I can't really explain it. But Paul's point is pretty clear. He's saying, as Christians, you have such an extraordinary future reigning with Christ in his kingdom over everything. 
How is it that you can't resolve something so trivial and petty here today? And then he goes on in verse 4, why would you take these petty disputes to people who are outside the church, to those who don't even know Christ, who have no such future? Verse 5, I say this to your shame. You should be ashamed of yourselves, he says in verse 5. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute among, among you, between the brothers? Is there no one in your church with the wisdom to be able to sit down and help two Christians who have a dispute, help them find a way to resolve it? Is it really true that your only option is to go sue one another in a court, in the public court of unbelievers? So Paul says in verse 7, his, his conclusion of sorts, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you is already a defeat for you. It means you, as Christians, you can't forgive, you can't resolve a dispute, there's no one wise among you, and you're putting your immaturity on full public display. You've already lost, he says. Wouldn't it be better to just suffer the wrong? Just be defrauded and eat the loss rather than run off to court? I mean, yeah, that deposit is something. You feel the loss, but isn't that better than what you're doing now? Nobody wins. Nobody wins, Paul is saying, when Christians sue each other like this. Several years ago now, there was a church that at that time was part of our fellowship of churches. And it's kind of a complex story that I don't fully understand, but the pastor of this church and leaders in the church got into a dispute with some members of the church. And accusations were going back and forth, and for a year or two, their accusations kept escalating and escalating and escalating until this pastor and, and church leaders decided their only option was to file a lawsuit in court here in America against what were now former members of their church. Now, I'd, it pains me to even tell this story and even say that, because even for me, way on the outside of this situation, far away, it was just downright embarrassing, just embarrassing. And I, when I learned of this and read of this, I in some way felt like the Apostle Paul here. Is there no one in that church with the wisdom to say, just stop, just stop it, stop escalating? Can we just sit down and figure this out? But you file a lawsuit and those are public? And then the media picked up on the story and now there's a heyday in the media of making the church look ridiculous. And of course, it is ridiculous. Who wins in this? Everyone lost. Nobody won. Nothing good came of the whole thing. But here's another situation I experienced. I think maybe I've told this story in one way or another, maybe a few years ago. But this goes back about 20 years ago now when I was a young pastor. I like to think I'm still a young pastor, okay? 
But then one of, one of our blessed teenagers the other day told me about an old couple she knew. And I asked her, well, how, how old are they? And she thought about it and said, a little younger than you. <laughs> that was a first for me. I'm now older than old. So I like to think I'm a young pastor, but I really was a young pastor at this time in my 20s. And as pastoring this church, and we had a family in the church that we were trying to help in various ways. And, and in the process, I offended this family. And they were, they were pretty seriously offended and hurt by me. They had a grievance against me. And what they did is they, they brought it to my attention right away and to the attention of our church's leadership. And I could kind of understand what they were saying and why they were hurt. And there was certainly some truth to it, but I also kind of felt like it was a little unfair. And, and I couldn't really figure out how are we going to work this out and so with the help of our elder board, we reached out to a retired pastor who was in the area at that time. He's died now several years ago, but everyone respected this guy for his wisdom. And so we asked him if he would come help with us. And within 24 hours of them saying, hey, we have this grievance, we were all sitting down in a room with this older Christian who helped us listen to one another, hear where feelings were hurt and where offense had happened, he gave us counsel, helped us forgive one another, put together a plan for how we would move forward. You know, of course, we couldn't take back things that had happened in that situation. We could only, in some way, forgive, take the wrongs that had happened, and move on. And that day, we hugged one another, we walked away, and the entire incident was pretty much put to rest that day. So far as I know, they've never talked about it again, at least not negatively. Maybe like I'm talking about it now positively. I only speak about the most positive terms. They're friends. I consider them friends to this day. And I respect them very highly because of their eagerness to resolve the dispute, not to allow it to escalate. And so that's what Paul wants for the Corinthian church. Stop escalating your grievances and disputes with one another, and instead resolve them. Okay, and this leads us to our second point now, rejecting the ways of the unrighteous. Now in verses 9 and 10, Paul is still making this point, but he kind of gets a little bit off on a, on a wee bit of a rabbit trail. Not too far, but he starts describing now the unrighteous who will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says these are the characteristics of of those people out there, outside the church, unbelievers, this is how they live, and his point is going to be an is, so you should not live in those same ways. Okay, so what is the conduct of the unrighteous who will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, verse 9, Paul says, don't be deceived. Here's, here's what it is. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this is quite the, the list of random and kind of eclectic things. There's a couple themes here, though, in this list. Especially toward the end of the list, Paul mentions the kinds of things that might lead to the lawsuits he's been condemning. If Christians are greedy with one another, like he says or if they're stealing and swindling one another, or even reviling 
one another, offending and abusing each other. And so Paul says these are unrighteous things. These are characteristics of those who don't know Christ. Don't be like that anymore is the implication. But then he also has a theme in this list, especially in the first half, that focuses on sexual immorality. And in fact, that's, if you notice, that's the first word in his list, the word sexual immorality, a broad word for any kind of sexual conduct that's not pleasing to God. And we know in scripture from cover to cover, the Bible is consistent. One of the things it's most consistent on is God's view of sexual ethics, what is right and wrong sexually. It's very clear and very simple in scripture. A man and woman who are in a covenant relationship of marriage Consummation is a good thing. Any kind of sexual activity, relations outside of that, is immoral, wrong before God. And so Paul throws in, like, he's talking about lawsuits. Where does, where does all this sexual immorality stuff come from all of a sudden? Well, remember chapter 5. What was the problem back in chapter 5? Man has his father's wife, and there's incest going on. We keep going into the rest of chapter 6. What's the problem in the rest of chapter 6? Brace yourselves for the next sermon prostitution, flee from sexual immorality, Paul will say. We get to chapter 7, and what's Paul going to talk about in chapter 7? Marriage, divorce, and these sorts of issues. So there's a lot of sexual immorality all around this passage, and Paul tucks it into his list here. And then interestingly, one thing that Paul adds to this list that's especially worth noting, and maybe you caught this, maybe it caught your attention, he includes here, Men who practice homosexuality. And Paul just kind of throws it into the list. It's not really a major part of this passage at all. It just kind of shows up in the list and disappears. But of course, in the world we live in today, this becomes a very important little statement that Paul tucks in here. And so we don't have time to, to flesh that whole issue out. That would be a, a, another sermon, another sermon series, really. Somebody should preach a sermon series on gender and sexuality around here, don't you think? Oh, wait, you've already survived that. That was last spring. Yeah, so we talked about this passage last spring in that sermon series on gender and sexuality. If you have questions about it and so on, we can, we can go back and get you those notes or we can, we can fill you in on some of it. But the long and short of it here is that Paul is very explicit in his language here, referring to the act, the sexual activity of homosexual Relations, And you may even have a footnote that kind of flushes out a little bit of the, the explicit nature of what Paul actually says. And our translators get a little bashful. And so they, they just turn it, well, let's just say men who practice homosexuality and call it, call it good here. But he's not speaking about desires, heart, orientation. None of, he's speaking about the activity here and lumping it in with all the other kinds of sinful activities, behaviors that are characteristic of those who don't no Christ that's not pleasing to God. Well, a lot more that we could say on that topic and in this list and so on. Begin. hopefully we can see the broad point. What's Paul saying with this list? What's the point that he's making? He's saying there is a set of conduct, a code of conduct, a way of living that is typical of the unrighteous, those who don't know Christ, don't belong to his kingdom, who won't inherit his kingdom. And Paul's implication is that should not be characteristic of you in the church. This is not how you should live. 
And why not? Because now our third point, you have become saints. Now here's, here's the best part of the whole passage, my opinion. Best part of the whole passage, verse 11. And the first few words of verse 11 are some of the most incredible words. In, I don't want to exaggerate and say in all of scripture, but maybe they are. What does he say in verse 11? And such were some of you. Such were some of you, but not no more. Not anymore. You were, when we think of adulterers, idolaters, the sexually immoral, homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, Paul's saying, yes, that's who you were, not who you are. What happened? Well, short, end, short answer is Jesus happened to you. Something changed in you. And Paul says in verse 11, three things have happened. You were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now that last part is important. How did this happen? It was in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the work of the Spirit. This is Paul speaking to Christians, saying, you Christians, you church, when you heard the gospel, the good news about Jesus, you put your faith in Jesus, you said yes to Jesus, you were baptized, you confessed your sins, you trusted him. At that time, he says, the Spirit of God went to work in you and applied the work of Jesus to you, and the salvation was applied to you, and in the name of Jesus and by the work of the Spirit, these three things happened. You are washed, sanctified, justified. And each of those three are incredible concepts here. First, he says, you were washed. It's as if you were dirty before you came to Christ. Dirty with sin. All these things he's listed, the idolatry, the sexual immorality, and so on. You were dirty with all of it when you came to Christ. But now in Christ, what's happened? It's been washed away. And so now you can think of your own life. You can think of your past. What made you dirty? What are the sins that made you dirty? The things that you're ashamed of in your life. The things you, could, you wish you could go back in time and, and take back. And you wish you could change that you had never done this or that. Maybe you wish you could go back and change this or that situation where the sins of other people committed against you leave you feeling dirty and you feel like you're just covered in the dirt of this sinful world. And here's the good news of Scripture. The reality of, is you can't go back and change your past. You can't go back and make it all different. But the good news is that through Jesus, what does God do? He washes us. He cleanses us. He washes it away. We trust in Jesus. And so Paul says to you and me as Christians, you were washed. Whatever you were in the past, he's washed it away. And then second, he says, you were sanctified. Okay, now we've got a couple big words to work through here. Okay, so stick with me because this is, this is incredible. You were sanctified. The word simply means God made you Holy. What does that mean? To be holy means to be a saint. 
He's saying you have been made into a saint. You are a saint. Saint Adam. Oh, that sounds even better than Pastor Adam. Saint, you are saints. The opposite of being holy, of being un, or of being sinful, the opposite of being sinful is to be holy. God is holy. This is when you were sinful in your unrighteousness, you were far from God, but that's what you were because now in Christ, by faith in Christ, you've been sanctified and God has made you holy. So now you are no longer unrighteous. You are no longer a sinner. You are now a saint without sin, fit for being in the presence of God. And so you can look at your resume, Paul saying to these Corinthian Christians, and you can look at that resume and say, drunkard, reviler, swindler, thief, quite the rap sheet you got going there, Christians. But what has God in Christ done? Thrown it all away and said, here's your resume, saint. You are a saint. You are sanctified. So you're washed, you're sanctified. And then third, Paul says, you are justified, which is another big word that means God has made you righteous. Now we have the language, the picture of a courtroom. And this is interesting. After talking about lawsuits, now Paul throws in this, this language of a courtroom at the end to say, it's as if you were put on trial. You're the defendant in God's courtroom. And God is determining, are you innocent or are you guilty in the eyes of the law and before God? Do you deserve punishment or don't you deserve punishment? And Paul says, you were unrighteous in your past, on the wrong side of the law, deserving of punishment. You've done all these things violating the laws of God. But now what has God in Christ done for you? He has justified you, meaning he has moved you over to this side and said, you're actually righteous. I'm not holding any of that against you. But now the righteousness of Christ belongs to you through the work of the Spirit, and you have a new status in the courtroom. Innocent, righteous, in right standing before God. No judgment for you. This is unbelievably good news when Paul says such were some of you but you were washed your sins washed away you were sanctified made holy you are saints you were justified made righteous you're innocent in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God such such good news such profound good news for us to think about that it doesn't matter what you have done in the past, how far you have wandered from God, what awful things you have done or been done to you. God loves you. Jesus died for you. And his salvation is for you. And yes, that includes even you. And when you trust in Jesus, God does the kind of work only he can do the kind of work he did for the Corinthians then, the kind of work he does still today, washing your sins away, making you a saint, making you righteous. We, we can't change our past. 
We can't go back and live a different way and live a better, perfect life. But the good news is God meets us right where we, where we are right now, and he says we can start here. We can start here in this moment. Let's clean you up. Let's give you a new identity, a new status, and let's put you on the right path and start walking in a better path today. There's no better news than this. No better good news in all the world. And so if you're here today and you've not been washed by Jesus, sanctified, justified, if you're here thinking about all of your sins and all the ways life has gone wrong for you, then may today be a day of salvation for you. And let today be the day when you turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. And maybe by the end of the day today, you can say, that's what I was. But I am washed. I am sanctified. I am justified in Jesus. And for us who know Jesus, Paul's point in this passage again, what's he saying in this whole passage we've been looking at? He's saying, you've become a saint. That's the good news. And now the implication, so live like it. How about we start living like saints? Don't live like you used to like who you used to be. But now start living like the saints that you are. Start living like people who have a glorious future of reigning with Christ in his kingdom for all eternity. Start living like people whose sins and shame and guilt are all washed away. Live like people who have been forgiven, who have received this grace from Jesus. Start living like it, Paul says. Leave behind the sexual immorality. Leave behind the idols. Leave behind the greed, the drunkenness, the swindling, the reviling. And in this passage, good heavens, Paul says, if another Christian, the saint sitting next to you, does something that upsets you and you have a dispute with them, don't handle it like the world does. Don't handle it the way that you used to handle such things. How about handling it like saints? whom Jesus has washed, sanctified, justified. And if you need help, Paul throws in there for good measure, like we all do sometimes, how about reaching out to another saint who has some wisdom, who can help you learn how to resolve your dispute in a way that honors Christ, that bears witness to the world, not of how ridiculous Christians can be, but that bears witness to the world of the extraordinary work Jesus has done for us and can and will do for them. So here's, here's the good news of the passage. Do not be deceived, Paul says. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed you were sanctified, you are saints. You are justified, you are righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now let's live like it. Amen. This has been a podcast from Grace Church of Mabton. For more information, visit our website at mabtongbc.org.